Hello. Hello, Sarah Marshall. We are about to embark on an episode of a show called Why Our Dads. We are about to sail the choppy seas of the dad ocean. We are indeed. What is Why Our Dads about? Oh, well, the ocean of dads is a, is a vasty, salty place full of the echoes of emotional withholding and resentment. When you when you take your ship onto the sea, anything can happen, chief. Wire Dads is a show where we take our friends out onto the orca of our podcast and sail the seas of dad feelings. But we don't want to kill the shark. We just want to pet the shark. Yes, absolutely. We don't want to we don't want to burn the engine out. Because that just leaves us stranded out in the sea. We're trying to have a three-hour tour, and so far we've successfully gotten back to port each time, but you never know. So we're going to talk about Magnolia. Uh, This is something you feel very strongly about as a movie for covering at the start of the year. What's your elevator pitch for what Magnolia is? (laughs) Oh my god. Magnolia is a wonderfully ambitious film about, I think, nine characters and their intersecting lives during a single day in the San Fernando Valley. And it's about weird weather in L.A. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's a literal pitch. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's great. And then if you go in looking for that literal pitch and you are really beaten severely with the Paul Thomas Anderson bluntness of what this movie's about. Of it all. I really like how our approach to these episodes is to go in just with the knowledge we have, you have another show where when you go in and talk about a topic, you guys, I'm sure, study it for up to 100 hours. Yeah, that one is harder to make. Yeah. <laughs> in this show, we go in with no knowledge outside of just having seen the movie. We go in and confidently call characters by the wrong name the whole time. <laughs> like Uncle Jerry, that unforgettable character in Home Alone. No, no, that happens regularly. Unfortunately, most of the time it's edited out. But I realized in our conversation that I kind of, I don't know, like at first confidently said and then immediately revoked it because I realized we had no confidence about these things that Paul Thomas Anderson's dad was still alive when this movie was made. Uh-huh. And no, this movie came out in the late 90s, I believe, probably 1999, 2000, around there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 99, yeah. That great year for cinema. This movie in Deep Blue Sea, something was afoot. And his dad died in the year, I imagine he was writing this very movie about dads dying in 1997 when Boogie Nights came out. I think it's a testament to his strength as a filmmaker that it's possible to imagine he hadn't personally gone through having a dying dad. I think that you saying that is proof of your faith in his art. Yeah, don't don't believe anything we say factually on here. This is a feelings show. Also, I want to say, and I, I am mortified by this, and I think it's great proof that like the things we feel most confident about, the things we think we know, we are sometimes most likely to get wrong. I confidently state that in this movie, everyone sings Save Me. They do not sing Save Me. They sing Wise Up. I've seen this movie dozens of times. We talk a lot about it. Just to say Wise Up is the musical moment in this movie. And that's a wonderful song, too. And all the Amy Mann songs in this are wonderful. This movie is built on a skeleton of Amy Mann songs. And they're all great but not so great that it makes sense to confuse them with each other. (laughs) Welcome to the show. We don't know anything. We're just like seasickly 
bouncing around out here, and um, <laughs> we're going to talk about how we feel, and the rest is just kind of iffy. This is about feelings. Details are important, but they're kind of secondary. All right, and then we're joined by our wonderful friend who joined us uh, for our Angels in America episode, uh, Emma Copley-Eisenberg. We are, yeah, and to me, a wonderful episode to do as our first one of the new year and the first one that we recorded in the new year, because I feel as if we've had this lovely Janice pairing now of this and Moonstruck. Janice like the god, not the character from Friends. <laughs> or the band and the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> Those are both amazing characters who don't get enough credit. But, you know, we watched Moonstruck and talked about it right before New Year's, and that I think is a wonderful movie about trying to let go of your baggage and live and love bravely and ruin ourselves, Loretta. And all of that. And it's really a joyful and a festive movie. And then I feel like this movie, it's about the same thing. It's about releasing yourself from the past, whatever way you can get to, and trying to live in the present day. And it's just really about how fucking hard that is. And I think, I don't know, it's meaningful to me to acknowledge and to talk about movies that acknowledge that like it's just hard to like have a family and grow up and try to not feel like the child you were especially as the person who once took care of that child is incapacitated and uh I, moonstrike is about living with your old parents and <laughs> magnolia is about dying parents time moved pretty quickly between those two stories but that's how it's been happening in this country lately I should say that we have a Patreon account it's at patreon.com slash dads. And if you are able to financially support a show that's about feelings, that's great. And uh, if you're not, we just enjoy the fact that you somehow are sticking with this long form conversation about dads. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot. And that you even want to hear anyone talk about men in any way right now like that's pretty cool i mean it would be equally cool if you didn't so it's just cool that we have listeners inexplicably somehow so that's great <laughs> <laughs> well on that uplifting note let's talk about dying dads <laughs> let's do it facing the past is an important way of not making progress this is something i tell my men over and over and over the most useless thing in the world is that which is behind me. Chapter three. I lost my gun today when I left you, and I'm the laughing stock of a lot of people. I wanted to tell you. I wanted you to know, and it's on my mind. And it makes me look like a fool. And I feel like a fool. And I'm not a good cop. I'm looked down at, and I know that, and I'm scared that once you find that out, you might not like me. And the book says we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. And no, it is not dangerous to confuse children with angels. You can just fucking die, you fuck. And I hope it hurts. I fucking hope it hurts. Oh, God, you fucking asshole. Don't go away, you fucking asshole. Don't go away, you fucking asshole. This fucking lie. Oh, so fucking hard, so long, the goddamn regret, the goddamn regret.
Alex, we are talking to Emma Eisenberg about Magnolia. And also, I have a kitten under here right now. It's pretty great. Oh, he's leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Emma, I think we've been planning on watching Magnolia with you since the last time you were on the show. Why was Magnolia a thing that it felt imperative for you to, uh, to discuss? Very imperative. Very urgent. I feel that this film is like if my teenage years were a mood, mm. the mood is Magnolia, which is not great. <laughs> Whose teenage years were great? I ask this jury. Exactly. My mom always refers to Amy Mann music as, quote, the music of when you were sad, oh. which is not incorrect. Uh, I went to an Amy Mann concert at the Oregon Zoo with my mom. Oh, that mm. might be weird. I wonder what she would be like in concert. Uh, it, it, I think it would have been great if I hadn't been there with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that checks. I think I just feel like it is fucking long. It's so dense. There's so many plot lines. There's so much intersection. I was very like into intersecting movies when I was a teenager. I thought that was like really deep and sophisticated. Mm. So did the 1990s. Exactly. For the first 10 minutes, it's like, hey, guess what? This movie's going to be about intersections. And here's how. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Because you know what LA is about? It is about confusing intersections. (laughs) It's so not necessary. On my rewatch this time, I was like... This whole movie is left turns on red. Yeah, it's like this whole like establishing part in the beginning is unnecessary but yeah I had a magnolia poster I was actually keeping track of the minutes and I was like we finish establishing the first scene of everyone's day we have the opening song montage where we hear Amy Mann sing one and we see a little bit of everybody and then we have everybody's first scene and do you know how many minutes in we finish with that or do you want to guess I really noticed that the first time that we spend any amount of time with the kid with Stanley is like 44 minutes in. Like, I don't know. What was it? Was it 60? How yeah. Long was it? Mm-hmm. it was 39 minutes. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Emma, you were saying. I had a Magnolia poster on my wall and I feel like when I looked at it, the feeling it gave me was um, the William H. Macy part when he's like, I just have so much love to give and I don't know where to put it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like what I took away from it at the time. The, like, heart is a lonely hunter, Carson McCullers thing of just, like, everyone's trying to love each other, but, like, failing, and they can't, and it just, like, seems so tragic and so deep. So that's why it lives deep in my soul. Yeah, this is so Carson McCullers-like, and it feels like a very literary movie to me, and, like, a movie that is attempting to be very novelistic. Well, I mean, so I I charted it this time. If you want to see my chart, it's lime green, so it's kind of hard to read. Oh, yeah, I love charts. (laughs) We're looking at a we're looking at a, a literal chart that Sarah has drawn with circles and dashes, connections. It's in lime green, so we can't read it, but I'm sure Sarah will enlighten us. So this is just a map of the characters, because one of the things I find interesting is that we have 10 characters and they break down into two groups that are both oriented around a dying dad. And we could have just had one of these groups and also these groups don't really intersect So I'm just going to read you my chart. This is not a complaint, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So we have the Earl story. So Earl and his wife, Linda, Phil, who's his nurse, and then Frank, who's his son, who he's trying to track down. And we know that Earl is connected to Stanley because we see that What Do Kids Know is an Earl Partridge production very briefly when Claudia is watching TV. And then we have the Jimmy Gator group. (laughs) 
So because the other dying dad, because Jimmy, his wife, the mom from A Christmas Story, a.k.a. Rose, his daughter, Claudia, and Jim, the police officer, who Claudia starts dating. And then Jim intersects with Donnie because he finds him trying to unrob his former place of employment. Then Donnie is connected spiritually to Stanley because they're both quiz kids. Stanley is also connected to Jimmy because they work together. And then the only point of human connection, I think, between these two groups is the other little boy, Dixon, who saves Linda when she overdoses and who talks to Jim at the very start of the movie and who has deleted scenes where he interacts with Stanley but which aren't part of the story. But what's interesting to me, and again, not a complaint, we could have had one of these groups and that would have been a very full movie. But we're getting a lot of repetition, but it's mm-hmm. like it's repetition that I am for. I'm curious about whether you guys would characterize it the same way. Yeah, I was just reading something. It was a review in the Washington Post that said that all these groups are the same story. Essentially, we just have one family in this movie. And indeed, it's three times over the story of the sins of the father suffering on the son. And that Donnie and the mistakes that the parents have made in his case is off screen, but it's the same thing. So I think the the quote was better, though. It was like... There's really only one story. It's spread among four families and viewed at different stages of its development. But nevertheless, it has but one beginning, middle, and end. There is a man. He is proud, even driven. His name may be Earl Partridge or Jimmy Gator or genius child Stanley's father, Rick. Or he may already be out of the story, as is the father of ex-quiz kid and now comic geek Donnie Smith. He had to succeed, and he did, but at great cost. Under stress and swollen with vanity, he gave in to the darker side of his nature and either abandoned the child, as did Earl, his son Jack, a.k.a. Frank, or he exploited him, as did Stanley's father, or molested her, as did Jimmy, or stole from him, as did Donnie's father. Mm. So I hadn't really thought of that, but when you say that, Sarah, like, yeah, it's really excessive. I think it adds to the extra much idea of, like, we get it, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> and I like it. Like, again, like, this ties into cats because I went down a little (laughs) rabbit hole wanting to re-experience cats this year and I was like in the end I think cats is the nutcracker of Broadway musicals something appropriate for a small child they can sit through it it's episodic there's no story they have to follow a lot of it is pointless spectacle that you can just enjoy for what it is cats works for me as a musical (laughs) and then not as a movie because like the musical components of it are so mangled within it And it's trying to not be pointless, but it works as a pointless thing. I like cats because I like repetition. And again, with this, I'm like, you know, even Paul Thomas Anderson himself has been like, this is too long. Like, if I could make it again, I would make it shorter. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you didn't, because (laughs) I love to see basically the same story played out in intersecting groups Mm -hmm. of people over one day. Because to me, like, there's something about, (laughs) it almost feels like, This movie is about dads in a way that feels for dads because dads are slow learners and you have to drive something into their head with a fucking spike. And that's what this movie does. And I really love obviousness in film. I'm a fan of that and I think it's underrated. I've brought this up a couple of times in the past times that we've talked about Magnolia outside of the show, which is that Paul Thomas Anderson has since brought up that he could have easily cut a half hour off of it. And I agree with him, but the things that I would cut are not 
any of the stories. I, I agree mm. that like all of the stories should be intersecting. I think the introduction, as much as I love how that could stand alone on its own, it could go. That basically lies out that like we're all connected and things weird things happen. Mm. And then the last 10 minutes, mm. which is just a reiteration of that first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then if you just had all these inter- intersecting stories, because I agree to get across this message, you have to say it a lot. You have to say it over and over. But the way that this story is framed by way of talking about like weird things happen and there are weird intersections and the way that things happen, I think clouds the actual interesting message, which happens throughout the movie, which is a lot of times when we're looking for love, we're in our own way or our history is in our way of being able to find to find love. It suggests that the movie's about something else at the front and back end of it. But like, really, it's it's about like how our histories haunt the fuck out of us that's true (laughs) i feel like it was like paul thomas anderson made a movie about his dad and his son feelings and then he was like oh i must create like an intellectual framework around which this can seem more Mm. but yeah and i agree that like i wouldn't want people to be cut characters because i feel like the individual ways that these people are affected by their the sort of sins of the father is so different like i love claudia's rage and i love frank's rage and horribleness i love donnie's pain like they're all so different that i feel like that's important to have like a diverse like this is what you know shitty dads do is create not one thing but many things yeah that's a great point and you could also see it's like it's about four abused children of different ages trying to get through a day is another way of describing Mm -hmm. the stories in this yeah and the significance i think of Speaking to what Emma was saying earlier about how we don't see some of the dads, but the dads are represented by the other dads in the movie. Meaning, for example, we never meet Donnie's dad, but we meet him by way of Stanley's dad. Mm. This movie uses verbal repetition in a way that I really love. I don't know if the dad says it, but Felicity Huffman says it. And I would also say that this movie really effectively taps into Felicity Huffman's capacity to be absolutely terrifying. Like, I would not give her a job minding child talent, frankly. Um, (laughs) I'm not in the business, but this is a gut thing. But there's a thing where she's like walking Stanley around in the setup where he ends up not really being given the time by any of the adults in charge of the situation to like see to his basic needs where she's like, go, you ready to go, go, go. And when Donnie is getting ready to go in and try and seduce, you know, his great love, bartender Brad, strip mall bartender Brad, he's like, you know, you know, you know, go, go, go. <laughs> you know, it's just like they it's the same dad. And so many people have said to me, like, do we have the same dad? And I'm like, I think in Hollywood and in the world, there are only 14 dads. Yes. Sometimes there yes. are different ones, but there I think a lot of dads are the same 14 dads. The thing I miss the most in coronavirus reality is Los Angeles strip mall bar. I forgot how much I missed it until I saw it in this movie. <laughs> it's like, ugh. yeah. See, you all are West Coasty, and I feel like the scene where Brad and Donnie are in the bar and there's like the old gay who's like interfering, who I love, that feels to me so West Coast and it feels like the opposite of everything that I know. And I think that was another part of why I loved this movie as a kid was it was it was California and I was so New York. Yeah. And I feel like there's like a thing about 
the spirit of California that that time was trying to capture, like with um, Crash, mm. that movie too, which is also sort of like a shitty version of this movie. Um, I feel like there's like some idea about like you're in LA and you're driving and no one talks to each other anymore. And it was like, I was trying to understand California by watching this movie as well, which I still don't understand. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I mean, I'm Maine based most of the time. So I felt exactly the same way that you're talking about where I felt like California was not just like of a different physical fabric, but like of a different like spiritual fabric, emotional fabric. Exactly. And that's, and that's very much what I feel in this movie i mean to the point where like it creates biblical drama yeah right by way of the relationships between dads and sons and daughters but there's like a literal frog rain so biblical <laughs> yes like literal biblical not like Sidney powell biblical so biblical. i know you guys always bring me in for the biblical ones last time we talked about cain and abel or whatever well you always have a history with the biblical ones so i don't know i would say that the difference between west coast and east coast bars in a nutshell and I would love to hear what you think of this, is that West Coast bars are trying to have more character and East Coast bars are trying to have a little less character. Mm, I mean, what even is a bar? I don't remember. <laughs> Sarah, can you give a setup of just who our two primary dads are? And then maybe, I guess maybe to an extent, like who uh, Stanley's dad is? Yeah. So our two primary dads are Earl Partridge, who is dying of cancer. And for variety... Jimmy Gator, who is dying of cancer. <laughs> I'm only making fun of this movie because I love it more than almost any other movie in the world. And I've seen it like 70 times. Here for it. Uh-huh. As you stated, like one initially hired the other. Right. It's Earl's production house. Earl and Jimmy presumably are like work buddies in some capacity, or they at least know each other professionally. I assume they developed this show and they have some history that we never really talk about, but it's how they are connected. Yeah. And he is the patriarch of all of the suffering, basically. <laughs> yes. Earl Partridge is basically, you know, runs an NBC like network. And then on this network, Jimmy Gator hosts a game show with the amazing title, What Do Kids Know? Which is kind of like, are you smarter than a fifth grader, I guess? And it pits traumatized child contestants against adults. And actually, so here, I have a question about what to, I have many questions about what do kids know. A, that show would never succeed in America because we are not that smart. (laughs) The questions they ask on that show are routinely impossible for all but someone who has multiple PhDs or just a child prodigy. We're to believe that Stanley has this very long winning streak, but he's also on a team with two other kids who are fucking useless. And I don't know if they were always useless or if they became useless over time because they just started depending on him to do everything for them. But what I'm wondering is, is it always child prodigies? Or do they usually just have normal kids getting slaughtered by adults and they just happen to get a really smart kid every once in a while just by sheer accident? Because I think that would be funnier and sadder. Well, I think it's that because people remember Donnie, which means someone who has a hot streak. It doesn't happen often. So much so that the Alfred Molina run electronics and furniture store put Donnie on a billboard to get people into the store. Right. Right. He's a once in a generation kind of a phenomenon, which is great because that means that there is this quiz show that has impossibly difficult questions that no one can really answer most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) So 
so anyway, these are our two main dads. They both have cancer. Jimmy has just found out that he has a couple of months to live. Earl is in his final days. And so he is being tended to by his nurse and his wife and is trying to find his estranged son. And Jimmy, having just found out that he has cancer, is trying to reconnect or begins the movie apparently wanting to reconnect or at least talk to his estranged daughter, Claudia. And then, and then Emma, how would you describe Stanley's dad, who is not as prominent in shaping, but he's certainly a dad force? I feel like I had two main takeaways from this rewatch for this podcast, which was the first is that I feel like the plot line with Stanley and Stanley's dad is the least interesting one in some ways because Stanley's dad is just universally terrible Mm. and universally just squashing Stanley's spirit like with his giant squash foot, you know, and and Stanley's (laughs) just like, I'm tender and I have a bowl cut and... I'm so sweet and I have the sweetest face and I'm so smart. And at that point that he um, wets himself and the dad just has no empathy for that. Yeah. Mm. It's portrayed as this like total greed, I guess, just like avarice with having um, a child who's can make you money. And I guess I don't I just don't feel that's as interesting, maybe, or as nuanced as the other stories. Mm-hmm. My other takeaway from this rewatch was like, the women in this movie get shit on so much. Like, this movie definitely does not pass the Bechdel test. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. let's remember. There's one significant woman in each family cluster. Yeah, but I feel like they're either, like, literally falling apart or they have no personality. They don't intersect with each other. Well, I guess Claudia and her mom do, but yeah. Yeah, there is one woman per storyline, which I believe is referred to the Smurfette problem, where you do have female representation, but it's one girl. Each story gets one girl, and then they get to live in separate aquariums. Linda, who's, like, s- screaming the entire time. The volume is turned up to a 10. Claudia, who's screaming the entire time. I love Linda, so we're going to have yeah. to talk about that, because I adore Linda, and she's very important to me. Yeah. I just feel like those are the two only two options for women in this movie, is to be, you know, to be having, like, some kind of a mental breakdown at volume 10, or to be basically disposable and like non-talking is anyone not having a breakdown in this movie i guess phil isn't phil is not love phil but i would say donnie's having a breakdown earl isn't having a breakdown but he's also physically dying so fast that he's deprived of the opportunity frank is a very loud breakdowner john c Riley. i think earl's having a breakdown for sure yeah i just can't tell because it's hard to say what how what to distinguish from just the act of dying earl seems to be drowning in regret yes in a way that it seems like based on everything else we know about earl it's not in his natural temperament to be regretful no <laughs> or, or self-aware mm-hmm. i'm torn i mean i agree with all of the criticisms about how women are portrayed in this movie what i do like about claudia at least is that her overall temperament seems to be a great inappropriate response to what her history with her father is and her father's like total lack of self-awareness and buried denial and his you know he keeps trying to reassert himself in her life in a meaningful way so he can get closure which is such an assault on her and understandably undoes her on a regular basis Mm -hmm. taking it as a movie that shows the different outcomes of specific kinds of abuse they're Mm -hmm. obviously in some ways cartoonish and not nuanced because of the Mm -hmm. volume and melodrama Mm -hmm. of this movie but i i did appreciate that we saw the destructive force of Jimmy 
I don't think the movie necessarily did a great job in drawing that line. You kind of have to be looking for it because otherwise it looks like Claudia is maybe inherently, for lack of a better word, nuts and not undone by her relationship. Don't you call her crazy. I won't. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I do love how much rage she gets to have. There's truly nothing more beautiful to me than a raging daughter, daughter raging at the father. Like, ah, chef's kiss. So I love that. Love a good daughter rage. (laughs) Especially in the face of him just, and I, I don't know, I don't know what to make of I've seen this movie so many times. I don't know what to make of what we are led to think Ray's awareness of his responsibility is. Like, is he just so in denial or has he been telling himself for a long enough time that like this has not happened? Or did he just hope that nobody would ever put two and two together and he could blame her as suggesting that she's crazy that he doesn't know that like when he shows up at her house it's going to trigger her in an intense way. I mean, it's, I agree, Emma, the rage that she has, which when I was a kid and saw this movie, I was like, as someone who is a culture, culture to think that like a woman who was yelling was crazy. I was like, this woman's over the top. But like, as I watch this movie over my life, I'm like, this woman has exactly the appropriate response to what, what she has gone through. Claudia reminds me of the behavioral issues that you get with a declawed cat. Declawed cats will be very bitey sometimes because you've taken away one of their natural defense mechanisms. And so they just have to bite you. Mm. Right. A declawed cat on so much cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 The cocaine. Well, I was going to say, like, Alex, like, dads don't know the word trigger. They don't know that they can trigger their daughters. Mm. And I find, yeah, I think when I first watched it, too, I was like, she's flipping out for no reason. Again, we only criticize with love. We are true American patriots in the in the yes. criticizing <laughs> with love. But I think that, like, as a movie that talks about abuse, it, it is a bit just, like, thrown in there. Like, sexual molestation, mm. father to daughter. Like, yeah. we get, like, seven point one minutes to like think about that it's like the amount of time we have to contemplate that before the frogs start raining down on everybody is like it's minimal yeah exactly once the frogs come down there's no more contemplating child sexual abuse and but i do (laughs) it's it's true (laughs) it's It's true true. i know it's just like such an amazing sentence to exist it is back to back (laughs) do you think that they let it i mean i don't think so i think he was just young and naive in a lot of ways but it would be interesting if they had let that breathe initially and someone was like we need to bring the frogs in earlier this is some heavy shit yeah (laughs) frogs they're like people need to pee at this point chop chop pta you already cut that other plot line where you tried to have diversity kill some more darlings sweetie and i also feel like the role that the mom plays in enabling the sexual abuse is like really vague and sort of off the page too and i think i was able to just like squint and map it in and be like oh like Hmm. mom enabled it mom's just like i don't know why a daughter doesn't speak to us and you're like yes you do rose figure it out it would in a way make more sense to have her be a much bigger character and then not have linda I love Linda and she, I also love Ginger and Casino and they occupy the same neighborhood in my heart, which is just like seeing a woman absolutely break down in public and just like force people to witness, try to drag people in to how painful it is to be her by making it incredibly painful to interact with her. Yeah. Like in the pharmacy? In every scene. Oh, the best. <laughs> She's awful to everyone. Oh yeah, she goes to the lawyer. Like, She's just like, yeah. Her response in the pharmacy, I feel like, again, is 
holy correct what was that pharmacist doing oh god yeah jesus christ she has death in her house yeah as a woman who has spent some time screaming at at my dad and mainly my dad i just appreciate seeing women in in film absolutely screaming at someone you don't get a lot of that like women Mm -hmm. You can't scream at someone in a realistic way and still be pretty. And I, I think that we see too little of that, partly for that reason. Mm-hmm. There's a delightful Billy on the Street sketch where Billy Eichner and um, Julianne Moore running around and people request to Julianne Moore a movie and she just does the monologue from the movie. <laughs> and she does, she does, I forget which one, but she does one of the monologues from Magnolia at somebody in New York. <laughs> it is beautiful. <laughs> That's wonderful. Emma, why do you think, I mean, we, we were talking about this briefly up front and you, you said that the melodrama was part of what drew you to this as a kid and uh, the music, I'm sure as well too. And so what about this clicked with you and why did you have a Magnolia poster? Indeed. As a kid and teenager, it was definitely the idea of like, I have so much love to give and nowhere to put it. No one would was like seeing my pain and no one was seeing the way that I was trying to love people and it just like wasn't working out you know it was cathartic but maybe it was also just somatically fun to like live in the space of feeling that sad and feeling that shocked by sadness leads to like exterior things happening I think it was like helpful and cathartic to see like people be sad and that sadness like doing stuff in the world as opposed to like my own stuff I was surprised that what really resonated with me this time was the Tom Cruise, Frank Mackey breakdown scene with Earl Partridge and him just saying, don't go away, you fucking asshole, right? Uh, is that the quote? Yeah, don't go away, you fucking asshole, just over and over again. Maybe just because, again, we have Trump and, again, we have incels and just this idea of, like, there's nothing that will make you hate women as much as like watching your dad like fuck over women yeah and just like the anger and the sadness and like the ambivalence of um having a dad who is dying who you hate and also love and I just feel like that scene was really rich in a way that maybe because I have an older dad and looking towards the future it's complicated and when you lose your dad you can no longer yell at him really (laughs) which is tough yeah I was just talking about this in another context. Yesterday, there was a, um, I don't know how successful the coup was, but there was a coup attempt in the United States. And someone else had brought up, you know, the fact that you basically have all these rampaging men in one way or another who were encouraged by the president to do it. And then they all did it. And then he told them all they did a good job. And like, there's such a specific... Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's such, such a specific, like, Eric Trump style, like, am I doing it right, daddy? Like, is everything, is, like, everything going well, daddy? And, like, seeing Tom Cruise in this role, which felt, I remember feeling outlandish at the time, in some way, like, over the top, and was such a fucking wild, on-the-nose predictor totally. of yeah. what is now a whole subset of almost to definitely mainstream political ideology yeah born of exactly what you just said emma is like watching a proud obtuse patriarch destroy the people around him and then internalizing that as a defense mechanism and then having to be face to face with it as it fades and have to reconcile no we don't know if he reconciles it but watching the emotions that he's going through sort of watching his father die is so incredible Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I said this with Angels in America with Roy Cohn, but it's like the ambivalence of 
the loss at the same time as the relief of someone who has both tortured you or left you, um, like leaves this planet, like that ambivalence, I just feel like is, it's really hard to talk about and it's hard to see because mm. when people are dead, you're supposed to be like, they're so great and all this shit, right? That's just not possible for a lot of people on this planet, including many of the people in this movie, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The thing we hear from a lot of people who are at least like aware of the show, but maybe don't listen to the show is it's like, I can't really get into dad stuff because of the thing we see Frank go through when he's being interviewed is because of acknowledging this thing, I'm going to get my ass kicked by the past. Mm. And I'm already sort of subtly to overtly getting my ass kicked by the past. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have it come and just bowl me over to the point where I have to say twice that I will drop kick some dogs if they get near me. Oh my God, I love that so much. Yeah. Those dogs aren't being very loud, you know? <laughs> Sarah's like, it, it could be better. Yeah. The Frank and Earl arc is the richest arc in this movie Mm. i think and tom cruise for all of tom cruise's tom cruise-ness just delivers real hard he really does (laughs) i love this performance it reminds me of also a a paul thomas anderson movie burt reynolds and boogie nights who like gave one of the best performances of his career like had a massive comeback and then hated the very movie that he was in Mm. and recognizing a performer's abilities and having them do kind of what they always do, but like orienting that strength in a slightly different way or something. How would you describe that? In general, Tom Cruise kind of negs women in as a character in like most movies, but this is just very on the nose, if you will. They were like, how can we make the Tom Cruise-iest character? And didn't they, he built this movie around Tom Cruise. PTA did. He built, well, he built it around Claudia, right? I don't know about the, that specific piece, but I know that like he had an existing relationship with Tom Cruise and they were trying to figure out how to work it out in, in a movie. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, they like created a character for him. And I feel like that's got to be out of the sense of Tom Cruise's like what's sexy about him is he's simultaneously like creepy and sexy or something. Hmm. And I feel like with the stringy, the shoulder length hair, the little like man ponytail or like half up, half down. He has like an android that's like almost working. So bad. I said this earlier to Sarah, but the biggest sin of this movie is that the logo behind Tom Cruise is ultimately a furry. <laughs> it is. And I've never noticed that. Yeah. It's like it's like a leather daddy furry, and it's not fair to the furries who I don't think at all adhere to uh the Tom Cruise uh, ethos. <laughs> they seem very far away from that most of the time. Yeah, and it's it's a furry it's a it's a dog and he's chasing a cat but an actual cat um who's running away in fear not like a a furry kitty cat lady just an actual cat yeah i feel like the idea like frank or or tom cruise wears a lot of like black and like black leather and stuff and like he's supposed to be like the daddy of this movie but then you're like you're not a daddy like you're so like fucking fragile yeah he is a little baby and I love movies where no one can get out without breaking down and saying what their deal is. Yeah. And I think this movie is a lot like Moonstruck, and I'm really happy that we're (laughs) we're watching those kind of as the bookends of the new year. Everyone at some point just breaks down in this. And there's even two breakdowns during public performance. There's Jimmy during the tape, during this inexplicably live... (laughs) (laughs) Game 
game show. <laughs> to me, the biggest plot hole in this movie is like that they're doing a game show live. It's great. So Jimmy, who has a, a mental and physical collapse, and then Frank, who, you know, during, again, the spectacular scene, because this movie works, is kind of, I think, built around monologues, too, is trying to process his dad trying to get back in touch with him and, and being on his deathbed and just sort of has a breakdown as he's giving his respect the cock seminar. The fact that the movie is so rough on these characters, as we talked about, it's very hard for me to motivate to watch like dozens of hours of a TV show, but I love to be immersed in a movie and I love to be immersed in a long movie because a long movie is shorter than a TV show. <laughs> and this movie is like very long and you feel like you have been through something by the end of it because so many people have been forced through some kind of pilgrimage into recognizing the truth about themselves or at least being given the opportunity to. Yeah, I think that's very helpful in terms of like, I think what this movie does so well and also maybe what stapled me to it for life is this idea of like, Indeed, like these are all people who cannot get out of this movie before every like scar, every wound, every truth mm -hmm. is laid out on the table. And I feel like that's really what I was seeking from like the world when I was a teenager was just like the truth and like authenticity and just like strip away all the other bullshit, mm -hmm. you know? And I felt like that was exactly what I couldn't get in the world that I could get in Magnolia was a world in which like people had to tell the truth and like confess all this shit. Th that's what causes the melodrama maybe because I'm like that's not how the world is but this world the melodrama serves a purpose which is like truth telling I think mm -hmm. knowing that this is his third movie this is Paul Thomas Anderson's third movie it makes sense to me kind of that we had him trying to make these two things happen where it's like weird intersections versus like history will come and get you and you need to figure out how to love like I I get that because the weird intersections piece resonated when I was younger because I didn't have enough of a history to go, you know, time's a revelator. It's going to really knock you on your ass in some way <laughs> and you're going to have to reconcile stuff. Like I didn't have that yet. And it makes sense to me that like, he was like still like a relatively young filmmaker who was starting to have like probably more mature and deeper thoughts and ideas uh, later on. He was trying to reconcile them. And then in his later movies, he just went straight for the, like, this is the character in human drama. Yeah. I like that this, movie goes deep on many of its characters but it it does in a very gratifying way remind you specifically why you're supposed to care and who you're supposed to care about and like why what exactly the plight is and that they're unified by the same plight to the point where they all sing the same song at the same time which invites you the viewer to save them <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, which makes this movie technically a musical. Yeah, Sarah, are you ready way. to deliver your uh, your uh, Magnolia's a musical uh, theory? <laughs> yeah, well, it's very simple. It's just that this is happening in-universe. Unless you think, and this is possible, that all of these people independently are Amy Mann fans, and they all love this song, and they're all <laughs> singing it during this moment in their lives independently. And that's really what connects them. They're all singing the song at the same time. 
Or it's just a musical with one number. <laughs> yeah, no, because Linda's like dead, basically. She's like um, she's like pre-dead, and she like opens her mouth to sing, right? So I buy the musical theory. I mean, <laughs> I think that the musical theory is just makes a lot more. It's the simpler explanation. It's a musical with one number, but it yeah, it's a musical, and it's a musical because the number happens in a way that allows us to see inside all of these characters who are living inside of this Amy Mann song, which, Alex, we recently learned, and this is the best fact I have ever learned in my whole life, is about Dave Foley. Who's Dave Foley? <laughs> of the Kids in the Hall. He's the squirrely uh, blonde, I mean, the mousy blonde one in Kids in the Hall. Well, I hmm, I would call him the, the cherubic redhead, but whatever. Is he? I, for some reason, I take him as blonde. I don't know. Okay, anywho. It's another song about a Canadian man from the 80s slash 90s, like uh, You Oughta Know. <laughs> it's like the anti-You Oughta Know. And also, the thing is, like, it contains the line, like, Peter Pan or Superman. And I was like, this song is about Dave Foley. <laughs> that makes me feel so much weirder about it, like, listening to it on repeat one, which I definitely did for, like, my entire childhood. <laughs> yeah, it is very funny, right? Because, I mean, to, and Amy Mann is important to me partly because, so I found her music through this movie, which I remember watching, I think on HBO, because my best friend in eighth grade, her family had HBO. Yeah, and so I remember watching this movie at her house and being totally riveted by it and then becoming really into Amy Mann's music through that. And then this past year, or last year now, 2020, really just reconnected with her songs and just sort of with the experience of sitting there singing an Amy Mann song all the way through because it is this wonderful, you know, it's like it's just sitting there and singing Save Me, like unlock something inside of you. So it's always weird to realize that something that has been like integral to your mental health at times is like about just a guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to talk about its conclusions we've touched on some of the darkness of the conclusions and some of the hopelessness but i'd love to talk about some of the dad conclusions and like what we're left thinking about some of these people but one of the things that i loved about this movie because i have said it before on the show but i took care of my dad in his last year and a half of uh, terminal illness is earl says this is so boring this is so fucking boring about dying and that was the realest shit that I experienced in this movie mm -hmm. because my dad was always just like, you anticipate getting to a particular age. You think you're going to die and then you keep living. And then it's so boring because you had <laughs> expected one thing and then you just keep going and you had no other plans and then you're infirm. And so there's nothing you can do, but sit and wait. And I mm -hmm. loved how strangely accurate that was. And I, I wonder what from Paul Thomas Anderson's life uh, that was drawn from, if yeah, anything at all, wow. if he just read it somewhere. You know, I'm not a betting woman, but I'd say he had a dad. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think his dad was dead by this time, was he? Oh, yeah, I don't know. But who knows? I'm not sure. I, I know nothing of, of his dad's situation. His dad, important to know, I forget his name and a lot of people will be upset about it, but his dad was a he was Goulardi, right yes that's it that's it he was like yeah. a late night horror presenter on uh on on a local oh. like, like a, a los angeles channel i always thought that had to be like the coolest job totally for your for your dad to do like this movie suggests that maybe having a dad who works in tv is not the greatest <laughs> though <laughs> i feel like we need to talk about philip seymour hoffman 
Oh, God, thank you. We for sure do, Emma. <laughs> Not to shortchange him because, but this connects to what you were talking about, Alex, because in the scene that we've all talked about that we love of Tom Cruise just, like, breaking the fuck down and going, don't go away, you fucking asshole, which is, to me, still the best line of the movie. In the background, you can see Philip Seymour Hoffman just covering his face in, like, this, like, scrunching his the bridge of his nose. Which is how he spends, like, I think 80% of his scenes. He's, like, yeah, touching, totally. he's covering up one of his eyes. A lot of the time, he's like an angel, you know, angels cover cover their eyes and sing of the Lord, and he's like that. No, he totally is the angel of this movie, and I feel like that's so powerful to see him in the background because he's crying. Like, you see, after Frank Mackey is crying and he's so, like, disgusting and, like, masculine and, yeah. like, just broken, and then you see Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's not related to any of these people, but who just has, like, the biggest heart and the most empathy about death, like, to be a basically palliative care worker or hospice worker, which it seems mm. like basically Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this movie. Like it just is such a tender portrait of someone looking at death to cry about someone else's suffering, you know, and that Philip Seymour Hoffman goes through this whole like 12 hour ordeal of trying to get in touch with the lost son. Like he, he grasped the urgency, I think. And, and from a, such a human real level like I think he's the only character who kind of like lives on planet earth in this movie you know and he doesn't like have a dad or like a dad figure really except for he like is there to listen to Earl's speech about regret wow yeah that's true I mean the kids in this movie I think are pretty grounded but the adults around them are all completely mm -hmm. just ruining all you know yeah I think Stanley would be grounded if if any of the adults in his life weren't horrible but we don't see that so Philip Seymour Huffman in a lot of ways is us yeah he's not affected by any of these cycles right he's not related to anybody and he yeah mm -hmm. and he's letting us know that it is sad <laughs> exactly like he's letting us know who are watching this that he's like yeah no it's sad like he's <laughs> this is a sad situation yeah in so many ways like you know there are many complicating factors with uh, my relationship with my dad which <laughs> I've talked about I have a show about, Maybe show about that? <laughs> yeah yeah it's pretty it's pretty good you should listen but at the same time I related with Phyllis Seymour Huffman's role with Earl in this movie not just as a caretaker but I'm my dad's sixth kid only one from his marriage to my mom his relationship with all my half siblings is like the Frank relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I had the luxury of like not having the heaviest drama in my family and was mm -hmm. separated from it. And when my dad had all the Earl moments in this movie and talked mm -hmm. about the regrets and stuff, like it was him really talking about his previous family that like I was the receiver of, which I'm sure created even more family <laughs> tension between mm -hmm. me and my mm -hmm. siblings. Wouldn't it be great if men could have some men, like a first <laughs> family that they thought were real people, but they were all like nerfed. <laughs> Like a trial family. And then when they're like 50, totally. which is the age at which a lot of men seem to become capable of rearing children without being complete fucking nightmares, they can have a real one. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Earl's like too far gone by the time Frank gets there, right? And he's like, I know you can like hear me in there. Like, you know, all this, he's like, I hope you're in all this pain. Like, it's such a one-sided, it's not a conversation. It's just Tom Cruise railing at Earl at that point. But right. the person who gets to have that last conversation and that advice moment right and in a way like the blessing thing sort of like angels in america is 
Phil is our friend, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He is the one that gets to hear Earl be like, people tell you like not to regret anything, but I say like regret things, like use that regret. Sort of like with his finger in the air like this, you know? And I just find that so, in a way it's again another case of like people don't get what they need or like it's a missed crossing or something. But in a way it's, it's really perfect because it's like Frank doesn't deserve that or want that from his dad, but this total stranger kind of does, or right. at least is willing to feel empathy about it. Well, and he seems like someone who is working with dying people by choice. And because he knows that he is good at and apparently is fulfilled by, because this doesn't seem like something that goes against his nature, being with people as they're passing. Like, it feels as if this is painful for him. Like, we're seeing him process a lot. And I love the scene where just everything has happened and then he just, I think he's like folding something or something like that. And he just starts crying and we're just... This is his breakdown scene, actually, and it's just you just have a a little cry with yourself. (laughs) I feel like this movie is showing us, like, all of us must cry. It's such an on-the-nose and obvious takeaway, but, like, it's still presented in a great way, which is, like, if you don't get out of the way of your baggage and sort your baggage through and just keep being the person your baggage steers you toward and not the person who you ultimately want to be, you are probably going to end up looking back with a shitload of regret or you're going to reaching for the wrong thing for acceptance, uh, fuck up a robbery and, and get hit in the face with a frog and smash your teeth (laughs) in the ground. (laughs) This movie shows like all the potentially bad things that happen. If you get, if you don't get out of your baggage and then our friend Claudia, she is for a minute, able to sort of work around some of it and find a quick and who knows how long lived a lovely connection with John C. Riley, the worst cop in Los Angeles. <laughs> I would say that relationship has an expiration date of whenever he notices that she has a ton of coke lying around. Yeah. 100%. yeah. But as we've said before, some relationships are, are meant to be short. <laughs> Is Philip Seymour Hoffman gay in this movie? I think so. I thought we got a hint that he has... No, no, because he gets the porn mags and they're all hetero porn magazine. But I thought, I thought for some reason for a long time... Well, they wouldn't... I don't think Frank would have ads in gay porn magazines, Alex. Or maybe he would. yes, that's... I forget that there's a logistics to that. I thought at some point in my life, I interpreted him as being gay. And that there was some hint of him having a boyfriend. And I don't know where I got that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember the um, pl- the ordering of the straight magazines, and then doesn't he ask for one gay magazine too? I think I can't remember. But- no, Hustler is is very straight. <laughs> if that's the one you're thinking of, the point of him ordering the magazines isn't that he's horny and alone; it's that he's looking for the ad to Frank. Yeah, okay, he needs I, to get th- Frank's yes. number. He's very he's a professional. Yeah. That one took me a couple of goes the first yeah. time I watched this to figure out. Yeah. But I think there's that moment, too, when Earl is describing his ex-wife and his regrets, and he's like, the, uh, the hips, the child-bearing hips, you know? And Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, mm-hmm. but it seems right. kind of gay. Like, he's like, no, I don't really know. <laughs> well, I feel like he's like Clarice in The Silence of the Lambs, where, like, the greatness of that character is that her sexuality is irrelevant and so Earl could be saying, like, get a girl, do things with her. And he could be like, yeah, I should get a girl. Or he could be like, well, not that exhibit. But yeah, the sentiment, sure. 
But I'm not going to say that because this moment is not for me. It's for you. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And that's how I read it. He says something like very dismissive, like I'm trying or something yeah. like that. But he has no, there's no specifics around the situation. Which is what you would say if you were like, let's not. Let's, yeah. On to, let's talk about <laughs> you, Earl. You're the one who's dying right now. Because <laughs> doesn't he like got a girlfriend? And yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, oh, yeah. no, 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 I don't. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. I miss him so much. He's just the fucking best. Ugh. Was just the best. I know. But I was just wondering that because I feel like the, is this movie kind of steering us towards the like heterosexuality is a trap and death. And the only character that's like sort of capable of empathy is the gay one, which I do love. That's a great read. Emma, you have a theory of soft men. Is Philip Seymour Hoffman relevant to that? Oh totally. Yes. I do. The person I was working with on the piece for Electric Literature gave it a way better title. I think it was like Soft Men with Hungry Hearts was like what I I was thinking about. I started thinking about it in reference to Lindsay Hunter's book, Eat Only When You're Hungry. But also I think a lot about the baker in Into the Woods and that he's a very soft, plump, like doughy man. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we touched on this last time I was on the show, which is that my theory that all fat men that's a major like defining aspect of their personality and while some people like donald trump are a fat man who takes it to a place of intergalactic rage if you are a fat man who is soft there's an extra layer of like beautiful tenderness to that where you've like taken your softness and made it like beautifully hungry like hungry for vulnerability Hmm. I feel like we've experienced this in our discussion of John Candy mm-hmm, in Home Alone mm-hmm, recently. Mm-hmm. Like there's something very vulnerable about his presence at just the right mm-hmm. moment. But yeah, and I feel like the thing about Trump is that like all of the things about him that he has spent his entire life avoiding are like neutral. Like it reminds me <laughs> of how like one of the reasons that Jim Jones moved everyone down to Jonestown so fast because the initial plan was like less ridiculous it was like let's slowly learn how to farm this land and then gradually move everyone down there but he was like no we all have to go right now because i've been arrested by an undercover cop who i solicited for sex in the bathroom and no one can know that i'm bisexual and it's like jim jones do you think that your bisexuality is the worst thing about you i don't think that's true Mm -hmm. totally in another life trump could have been a baker He could have baked professionally in some capacity, but that is not the way he went. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think to some level, I mean, outside of there are various like very sort of like passing queerness cues about Phil's character. But do you think his softness is something that that triggers that for you? I think so. Yeah, I think he's also like as a person and thus as an actor, like extremely pale. He sort of has that like sweet doughboy vibe, which I do really associate with like the baker in um and also with like PETA kind of in the Hunger Games. Again, it's the baker vibe. Something about mm-hmm. being a man who's like covered in flour and creating beautiful, tasty things really gives me like the feels <laughs> about masculinity. And I feel like there's like nothing mm-hmm. more like non-normatively mm-hmm. masculine than like this pale, freckled plump like gay man which is philip seymour hoffman and i'm just like just want to eat him up oh my god to me there's something rare and special about like a fat man carrying himself with dignity and self-love and i feel like maybe heteronormativity like beats the self-love out of a fat boy in a way that just sort of embracing queerness 
if that's a part of you, like maybe would save you from? Yes. Yeah. And I feel like fatness is queer in the, in our culture. Like it's, it's different and stigmatized. And I feel like there's something about, I mean, in the movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman isn't yeah. fat. He's just sort of delightfully plump and not Frank Mackey style, like built. Right. I was going to say, I think I get the sense that Philip, that Phil's character does love himself. And I think that's also what makes him the ultimate daddy is he um, does isn't looking for that elsewhere. Jim is a really interesting character who it's just so f- strange and interesting to me to watch this character who's just this lovely boy scout of a man. And also I love watching the intro to this where he's describing himself on his dating profile where he's like, I'm 32 years old. And I'm like, I'm 32 <laughs> years old. And he's like, I'm getting up there. I'm about 6'2". And I'm like, I'm about 6'2". <laughs> and he's like, and I'm about 180. And I'm like, I'm pretty close to that. And I'm like, wow. I'm that person physically. I'm just like a very large, benign, just sort of like, (laughs) but he likes to lean over women. I don't do that. Yeah, we have these two men whose dads we don't know anything about, which makes them unique in the story, and whose parentage and whose families we don't know anything about. They both might be transplants. And Jim is one of our caretaker figures, and we have a nurse and a cop in those roles. And I think one of the har- the things that's a little bit hard to reconcile also because this is kind of an awkwardly cut storyline is that like the same guy that's yelling at Marcy in the opening is, is the guy who's going to like be helpful to Claudia, who is, as we've said, a declawed cat who bites and is on a lot of cocaine. I mean, I get the impression that like Jim's a bad cop because he has a heart. Yeah. Jim in this movie, like he talks about how he's like, people make fun of me. He has no cop friends and they all ignore him. Mm-hmm. And he basically at the end, like helps a criminal yeah, not be a criminal anymore by yeah. giving him the benefit of the doubt. So maybe he could look the other way <laughs> about some cocaine. <laughs> he doesn't give Marcy that benefit of the doubt, which, you know, I think that this movie has trouble with some characters of color. I was going to say, I feel like the little boy is a bit of like a magical Negro moment, which I don't love. Who speaks in rap. Yeah. (laughs) There's a very early episode of Law and Order that does that. And it's one of the weirdest things you will ever see. It's not great. Yeah. That kid Dixon is prominently featured in a scene that I don't even know if they filmed it and cut it or if they just never filmed it at all, but where he intersects with Stanley. And then we kind of figure out like, how did this guy in the closet end up dead and and why and what was the motive and et cetera? And, and the fact that that was cut just makes it feel really strange that we get this scene where basically John C. Riley just sort of patronizes a child and acts like a real asshole. Yeah. But Alex, what do you think of the cut scene? I'm glad that they cut it. I don't think the issue was add another scene to create more overlap between these characters. I think it's like the overall approach should have been cut the Marcy thing at the beginning and cut all the things with these kids. Because the thing that inadvertently happens, we have three characters of color. One right up front is a murderer. Yeah. The other is a magical Negro rapping child. And the third is, uh, the third is great, is the journalist who takes Frank to task. Oh, Guinevere. Yeah. Something that occurred to me this time is that we have two black women in this movie, Marcy and Guinevere, and they both essentially exist to create friction and to be like a major challenge to one of our main characters 
you know, and then that's it. They're like, okay, bye. I furthered the plot. And like, I think that, that Guinevere is a, a memorable character who I enjoy in this movie, but you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not about her and it's not pretending to be about her, but yeah. And also it's, it's weird too. Cause like, I love that opening. It really does it for me. I feel like it starts off very strong and it's just this spectacular overture. And then the Marcy scene is the first scene and I'm sure, I, I assume it was intentional mm-hmm. to give us this feeling of being like, ah, oh, this is this is rough. But it's like it's maybe rough for the wrong reasons. Yeah, it's not good. I don't like the John C. Riley character in this movie. Mm. I feel like he's very patronizing, probably out of a sense of insecurity. He seems to have an extremely simple moral universe and it feels like everyone is going to disappoint him because of that. Exactly. And it's like, John C. Riley. some people do drugs to survive. Like, shit happens. And he's like, I mean, it's creepy. You're, if you're a cop, you don't yeah. ask someone out who you just came over to do a noise. Like, it's creepy. Mm-hmm. I think if this if this movie had more space, John C. Riley would have an arc. Mm-hmm. His redeeming qualities that happen at the end kind of don't happen with anything in the middle. It's just like at some point has a realization that he needs to not have a stick up his ass. But like there's no connective tissue to that. Just... I mean, I guess he's kind of a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. Because <laughs> he exists so that Claudia can like have something to smile about. I do love that she gets her mom back at the end. I love that scene if dads have to die so that mothers and daughters can reconcile like i'm fine with it yes i mean i am really fond of the moment when you know the frogs come down and then everyone is driven you know into the arms of the person that is accessible to them is near to them you know donnie and jim find each other Claudia's mom manages to get to her apartment and I love the part where Claudia I think she's crawling towards her mom because she's so scared and she's going mom mom and then she says mommy right right. and just like I love movies that recognize the moments when adult children just like completely lose 30 years all of a sudden Mm. Mm -hmm. I have a theory that Stanley made the frogs happen because a he's reading all these books about Mm. weather he's asking about weather he's reading books about Fortiana you know, basically weird coincidences and maybe paranormal happenings cataloged by Charles Fort. Right. And when the frogs happen, he is very serene. That's a moment where he's actually in his element, which he hasn't been before and won't be again in this movie. But I, I am I am satisfied by a story mm-hmm. where the true intelligence of this child who can like recite facts and know things but also has the intelligence of children that like gets beaten out of them by the adult world over time i think his intelligence is his ability to somehow also magically manifest this this biblical plague that's going to force some of the adults in his orbit to like learn something as dixon the other little boy said at the beginning if the sunshine don't work the good lord bring the rain in it's true We know the many, many dads. Who, Emma Eisenberg, is the daddy? I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is the daddy because he is the daddy to Earl, who is the ultimate daddy. And also he daddies everyone with kindness. I think that's beautiful. I think that's all I have because everyone else is like not a daddy. The choices are 
all the non-dads, and I feel like Philip Seymour Hoffman is, he's a benevolent patriarch. I agree completely, and I think that the theme that we have unearthed by asking this question over and over, which makes me really happy that we did, aside from the fact that it's weird and makes people uncomfortable sometimes, which I also enjoy, (laughs) is that what we truly identify as daddiness is, like, someone who doesn't get in their own way and, like, is secure enough to act lovingly and, like, that this is what we all recognize as, like, a true parental figure, someone Mm -hmm. who we can actually trust and allow to guide us and to be dominant in that way of, like, I trust you as a caretaker rather than you're going to have power struggles with me and yell at me and make me go on game shows. Yeah, I kind of, I want to be glib in a way and say the act of God is the daddy. (laughs) God is the daddy. This is just this, like, unifying, sort of consistent, brutal force that intervenes upon everybody at the same time. I don't like that as a daddy move, but I like it as a mechanism in the movie. But it's hard. I mean, I agree so wholeheartedly. Like, Philip Seymour Hoffman in anything almost all the time is the daddy. So tender and just, and beautiful and sweet. And he is him at his most pristine Uh, And I I adore him. Yeah, he really is. There's this absolutely absurd little monologue that Michael Scott has in the episode of The Office where he meets Holly and where he's like, I would be willing to say that she has baked professionally in some capacity. Like he convinces herself that she's a baker because she has that aura. (laughs) And maybe it's because he enjoys envisioning her that way and it just like connects with how she with how she makes him feel safe inside. Yeah, the, the character of Phil in this movie I feel that same way about him. I'm like, I am willing to bet that Phil has baked professionally. (laughs) (laughs) Like maybe he hasn't, but just the the sort of sense of like acceptance that people are going to die all over the place and people are going to have regrets and you just got to be calm and take care of them. All right, everybody, that is it for this episode of Why Our Dads. Thank you so much for joining us. We, of course, want to thank Emma Copley-Eisenberg for being on the show with us, for talking about Magnolia with us. Emma's book, The Third Rainbow Girl, is now out on paperback, and we strongly encourage you to pick up a copy. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing our show. It is such an honor and a pleasure to have Carolyn at the helm in the way that she is. And you can find her EP, Tear Things Apart, uh, over where she is on Twitter or at carolynkendrick.com. Join us next week. We are going to talk about, and listen, before I say this, just know that the show will be entertaining no matter how well-versed you are in this universe because we'll talk about all sorts of things. But we are going to talk about the Sonaverse. Now, if you know anything about Sarah, particularly on Twitter, you know that Sarah is a huge fan of the Saw movies. So we are going to talk about Saw's one through seven (laughs) all in one episode we're gonna have a very very special surprise guest you can guess who it is i don't know if you'll get it but i am so excited to talk about the sauniverse with uh with sarah as of now 
I have not watched any of the movies. So sometime between now and uh, the recording, which is in just two days, I'm going to watch seven Saw movies in a row. Hopefully I survive with uh, with my health intact. That's it, I guess, for right now. We'd, we'd love for you to join us on social media, on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Again, we are on Patreon where you can support us uh, making the show. And if you are not able to do that, we are just happy that you are listening to us talk about Magnolia one week and Saw the next week. All right, everybody, we appreciate you very much. Keep your chin up out there. It is a wild fucker of a ride.